Um, Would you turn with me now in your Bibles to the book of Romans, or the letter of Romans? We find ourselves picking things up in chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired and errant and infallible word? Uh, We are going to be reading chapter 2 and verses 1 through 11. This is the word of God. Let's give it our full attention. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Thus ends the reading of his word. All flesh is like grass, and all of its flower is like the all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Two chapters from now in Romans four, at the very heart of his explanation of justification by faith alone, Paul will quote from Psalm 32. Here's what he says. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, I think in order to feel the full force and glory of that declaration, that the man is blessed against whom the Lord will not count his sins, that that man is forgiven, I think in order to feel the full force of that, we need to reflect for a moment on David's sin. You might remember that David, the great king of Israel, neglected his duty to lead God's people in war and stayed home. And while he was at home and walking on his rooftop palace, he happened to see a beautiful young woman bathing. 
And given over to the lusts of his heart, he inquired about her, and he discovered that her husband was actually away at the very war that he was meant to be leading. And you remember the story how David took her, Bathsheba, and he laid with her, and then he sent her home. When he later discovered that she was pregnant with his child, he determined that he would cover up the affair. And the way he would cover it up was ingenious. He would recall her husband from the battle. The only problem was that her husband was so faithful to the cause of the war and he was in such solidarity with his troops who were lying in the open field that he would not go into his home or go to his wife. And so in one last and desperate effort to cover up his sin, David, in the darkness of his heart, plotted to have Uriah killed in the battle so that he could take his wife and hide his sin of adultery. And it all went swimmingly. It all went according to plan. Uriah was killed. The thing was covered up and hidden from public scrutiny. Uriah's death looked like an accident of war. And David looked like a hero, taking his grieving widow to be his wife and to provide for her. All of it hidden from the public eye. And yet while it was hidden from the public eye, you know well that it was not hidden from the eye of the Lord. And so the Lord, in his wrath and in his mercy, sent Nathan the prophet to confront David Now, as you can imagine, it is no small thing to confront the king about his sin. You might remember Nathan's great wisdom and the way that he chose to confront him. He didn't come out and just immediately rebuke him and accuse him. Instead, Nathan tells him a story. He tells him this story about two men who lived in a certain city. One of them was very wealthy. He had a bunch of flocks and herds, and he had the fields to graze them on. The other man was poor, and this poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. It was all that he could afford, and he loved this little ewe lamb. It was special. It wasn't just one among many in a flock. Nathan tells David that he had raised up this ewe lamb, that it had grown up with him and with his children that it used to eat of his morsel, it used to drink from his cup, it used to lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. He loved this little lamb. But then the rich man had a guest come to town, and he needed to provide a meal for the guest. And in spite of his great wealth, in spite of having all of these sheep at his disposal, Instead of taking one from his own flock, he instead did this terrible thing. He took the poor man's little ewe lamb, and he killed it, and he prepared it as a meal for his guest. Do you remember how David responded? The Bible says that David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. Imagine kindling 
sitting on top of a fire that gets the oxygen and then suddenly bursts into flame. David's anger is kindled. It immediately rises in him. He feels the injustice of it. And he says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And that's when Nathan said to David, David, you are the man. David, who had unjustly taken multiple wives over the years, had the audacity to steal the one beloved wife of Uriah and then to cover up his coveting and adultery with murder. Now, the reason that I have recounted that story here at the beginning of Romans 2 is for several reasons. First, because I think it serves as a very fitting biblical example of someone who in passing judgment on another is condemning himself. David is so quick to judge that rich man. And yet he has practiced the very same things. The second reason I've told the story is because it's a good reminder that just because God's wrath against David's sin was temporarily hidden from view, it did not mean that he was going to escape God's wrath. Rather, because of David's hard and impenitent heart, he was storing up wrath for himself. A third reason I've told the story is because that David, in not confessing his sins and in not walking in faith and repentance, was presuming on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. And finally, I've told this story maybe for the most important reason, because God was kind and forbearing and patient, and he would not allow David to sit in his sin, but in his kindness he would lead him to repentance. As we look at Romans 2 today, we need to understand that God's kindness is leading us to repentance. This is a hard passage of Scripture. It will be hard for you to hear. I promise you it's harder for me to preach. But Paul is setting up the gospel. In chapter 1, 18, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20, he gives one extended argument on man's universal need for some good news. Jeffrey Lamb puts it this way, Paul is establishing the foundation for his exposition of justification by faith. He is setting up the gospel. In chapter 1, you'll remember that Paul's focus was on the Gentiles. It was on their need for salvation. But now here in chapter 2, he actually is turning to his own Jewish people to show them their need. That's clear from verse 17, where he says, But if you call yourself a Jew, and you rely on the law, and you boast in God, and you know his will, and you approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And so as we work through this passage, we see once again that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. 
as it is written, none is righteous, not even one. And so as we look at this passage together and as we work through it, let me give you these three points to hang your thoughts on and to organize your thinking. First, in verses 1 through 2, we're going to look at this passing of judgment. As we see Paul, as he calls out the hypocrisy of those who pass judgment on others while practicing the same things. There is a passing of judgment. Secondly, we're going to see in verses 3 through 5, a presuming on the judge. And here we hear Paul's warning of the danger of presuming on God's kindness and patience, a kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance, a presuming on the judge. And then finally, we're going to see in verses 6 through 11, Paul laying out a principle of justice. Here, Paul lays out the principle of strict justice, which is the basis for God's righteous judgment. And so a passing of judgment, a presuming on the judge, and the principle of justice. Look at this first point with me in verses 1 and 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, Because you, the judge, practice the very same things, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now, as we begin here, I want you to take note of the universal sort of language that Paul's using. While it's true that he has his fellow Jews in mind particularly, he doesn't actually bring that up until verse 17. Instead, he uses this universal language. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. And I think that it's important to say that because hypocrisy is not just a Jewish problem, is it? It's a human problem. It's my problem, and it's your problem. And it's particularly a problem for those who are religious, whether Jews or Christians. The man that he's calling out here is the sort of man who was probably nodding along with him all through chapter 1, as Paul was describing the sinfulness of the nations. Yeah, you tell him, Paul. You tell him. We know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. It's, it's the kind of person who is quick to see the faults in others, but slow to recognize them in himself. He sees very clearly the splinter in his brother's eye, but he cannot see the log in his own eye. He's like David. He's shocked and appalled and enraged at the audacity of that rich, heartless, sheep-stealing man in the parable. Not recognizing all along that he is every bit as guilty and more. And Paul says to this person, you have no excuse Because in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Now, Paul is not saying, let me clear this up, Paul is not saying that no one can ever evaluate the behavior of another or make a moral judgment. Right? It's like Pastor uh, Crawford said, this, this isn't a matter of discerning. Not at all. He's doing exactly what Jesus was doing in Matthew 7. We didn't plan that. Uh, Well, he probably planned it when he saw my text, that he chose that for the uh, conviction of sin today. But Paul is doing exactly what Jesus is doing in Matthew 7. 
Judge not that you be not judged. For with the same judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, many people who otherwise hate the Bible love what Jesus says here. Do not judge. Judge not. But of course, they they only love it because they have stripped it from its context and twisted it to mean something that it doesn't. They imagine that what Jesus is saying is that no one should ever judge the thoughts or actions of anyone else. But of course, they ignore what he immediately goes on to say about not casting your pearls before swine. They ignore what he says in John 7, where he teaches us to judge with righteous judgment. Jesus and Paul are not advocating some sort of perverse social contract where we all just agree not to judge each other. Where we all just agree to let anyone get away with anything and everything because no one has the right to judge. That is not what he's saying. But what they are saying is they are giving us a sober warning about the hypocrisy that is in our judgments. They are warning us that our judgments can be self-condemning. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. For in passing judgment on another, you, the judge, practice the same things and you condemn yourself. Now, just as an aside here, let me encourage you to be very slow to make judgments against one another. Jesus said, it is the merciful who receive mercy. In the book of James, it says that judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. If we want mercy for ourselves, we should be very slow to demand judgment on others. We need to be very careful to examine our own hearts and our own motives before we make accusations or we pronounce judgment on others. This sort of hypocritical passing of judgment, you'll notice that it's not just detestable because it's hypocritical, it's also detestable for another reason. It's detestable because of the posture that it takes with respect to God himself. And that brings us to our second point about presuming on the judge. Look at verses 3 through 5. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul says if you are hypocritically judging others in this way, there can only be two reasons for it. Either, on the one hand, you have this faulty supposition. You suppose that you will somehow escape God's judgment. You suppose that you will somehow escape God's judgment. Or, on the other hand, you suppose that in the day of judgment, God will overlook your sin and hypocrisy. In which case, he says, you're presuming on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience of God. 
Either way, Paul says, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, this would have been particularly a, a temptation, a particular temptation for Paul's Jewish kinsmen. After all, they could look back on redemptive history and they could see this marked difference between the way that God judged the nations and yet was patient with them. I think, for example, of the difference between the way God dealt with the Egyptians versus the way that he dealt with the Israelites during the Exodus. Or think of the difference between the way God dealt with the Canaanites versus the way he dealt with Israel during the conquest. What accounts for that difference? Well, God is partial to us. God loves us. God is favorably disposed to us. And it seems that during the time of Paul, there were those who had come to believe something like this. So let me give you an example of this from a non-canonical, Jew, a non-canonical Jewish text called Wisdom, uh, which says that while chastening us, you scourge our enemies 10,000 times more so that when we judge we may meditate on your goodness. But when we are judged, we may expect mercy. Pauline scholar and friend of this church, Marcus Miniger, wrote a wonderful dissertation on Romans 1 through 3. And he says that this formed, in their minds, the basis for positing a permanent double standard on God's part which gave a reason why some sinful people were warranted in judging other sinful people. But Paul will not countenance that for a moment. He says in verse 11, God shows no partiality. And if God is kind and forbearing and patient, which he is, it is meant to lead not to presumption, but to repentance. It's meant to lead people to that place where they are grieved over their sins, where they hate their sins, so that in turning away from their sins, they turn to the Lord for mercy and for power to change. Because there is a day coming, a day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And that brings us to our final point, then, as we consider the principle of justice which will be the basis for God's righteous judgment on that day. Verses 6 through 11 are really, 6 through 11 are really just an explanation of verse 5 and of the unfolding of this principle of judgment. So we read here in 6 through 11 that he will render to each one according to his works. Take that in. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Paul begins with this overarching statement about God's justice. He says, He will render to each one according to his works. 
That is a statement that is basically a quotation from the Old Testament. You can find it in several different places. The exact language in the Septuagint is used in Psalm 62. It's also used in Proverbs 24. Interestingly enough, Paul does not say it is written, or as the psalmist says, or as Solomon says. He doesn't give any reference at all. Uh, because this is such a well-known principle. It is such a widely accepted principle in Judaism that everybody simply understood that God was going to judge everyone according to what they had done. And so now he goes on to fill that out. Those who, by patience or perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality to those who will give eternal life. If you do good... If you seek after glory and honor and immortality, you get eternal life. But if you don't obey the truth, and you obey unrighteousness, you get wrath and fury. This is what we should expect from a perfectly righteous and holy God. That he will not show partiality to anyone, but will give everyone exactly what they deserve. That's why I said this is a hard sermon. And taken in abstraction from the whole of Paul's argument here, it sounds like Paul is suggesting that there are actually some people who will spend their whole lives patiently doing good and seeking for glory, honor, and immortality, and who will, on the basis of those good works, actually obtain eternal life. But that is not what is in Paul's mind. Paul is not describing actual individuals here. Rather, he is setting out the principle of God's justice. It is hypothetically true that if there were those who, by perseverance and doing good, sought for glory and honor and immortality, they would be rewarded on the basis of God's justice, with glory and honor and peace. But Paul is laboring in this whole section to prove that such people do not exist. Now, why should we think this? Why should we think that Paul is speaking hypothetically here and not describing actual individuals? Let me give you three very straightforward reasons. First, if Paul was saying that there were good people who by their good works could obtain eternal life, that would be in direct contradiction to his conclusion. The whole point of this argument that he is making is to prove what he says in 3, 9 through 10. Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. How many are seeking for glory and honor and immortality? How many are doing good in patience? No, not one. Second, if Paul were saying that there were, in fact, good people who will obtain eternal life, it would be in contradiction of his very clear teaching elsewhere of the necessity of faith in Jesus Christ to escape God's wrath and curse for sin. 
Think of the way this is summarized in our shorter catechism. What is necessary that we might escape God's wrath and curse for sin? It's faith in Jesus Christ. The only way you escape God's wrath and curse is through faith in Jesus Christ. And third, if Paul were describing actual individuals rather than laying out this principle of divine judgment, it would stand in direct conflict with the examples that he's going to give of Abraham and David, who were not good, who did not in patience seek these things, but yet were justified. Blessed is the one to whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Okay, but let's just suppose for one moment that Paul is not doing what I'm saying. Let's suppose that Paul actually believes that there are such people whose entire lives have been characterized by perseverance in doing good and by always seeking glory, honor, and immortality. Let's suppose that's true. If that is true, are you such a person? Are you? If that's true, does what he's describing describe you? Or would you better be described as someone who has at times been judgmental? Are you the kind of person who has at times presumed upon the riches and kindness of God's grace? Are you the kind of person who's been self-seeking, disobedient, unrighteous, Paul's going to go on to say in verse 13, it's, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, the doers of the law. When you reflect on God's law, do you think that you have done it? Is it like a checklist? And like the rich young ruler, you're like, yep, never committed adult, idolatry. Yep, never bowed down to them or worshiped them. Never taken the Lord's name in vain. I've always honored his, his day. I've never murdered anyone. I've never been angry in my heart. I've never lusted or committed adultery. Never stolen anything. Is it a checklist for you? Or... Does your conscience bear witness against you and accuse you, as he says in verse 15? These are rhetorical questions. Please don't answer out loud. There's no need. We all know the answer. The answer is exactly what Paul says in chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You see, that's why I led with David's words. It's why David's words are so important. 
when he speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from his works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Because there is not one of us in this room to whom Nathan the prophet would not come and say, you are the man. This is such a searching portion of God's word. But you know, God is so good. And I think that God gives us his word this morning. I think he sends Paul to us like he sent Nathan to David. So that we might see that yes, I am the man. So that we might not presume upon his grace. So that his kindness might lead us to repentance. And that kindness leads us to repentance when it leads us to Jesus. You see, strictly speaking, it's not exactly true what I said, that no one has done what Paul describes. There was, of course, one man who persevered in doing good, who sought for glory and honor and immortality. There was one man, one and only one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Tell me, is this not an apt description of his life? Who was always and only good, who even when he was tested and tried, persevered in doing what was right, whose whole life was spent seeking what was glorious and honorable and in pursuit of immortal life and communion with his God and Father, who lived not in judgment of others, who says, I didn't come into the world to judge the world. I came to save the world. Think of that famous passage, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes might be saved. Why? Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world. The world was condemned already. There was no need to come condemning and judging. The world sits under God's wrath and condemnation. Jesus comes to save. And how does he do that? Does he receive glory and honor and peace? Does he receive all that was due to him by right of his righteousness? No, you see, he received all the things it says that the disobedient and the unrighteous receive. He received tribulation and distress. He received God's wrath and fury. And he received those things for us. You see, this is the most remarkable manifestation of God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's the cross. It's the cross where God is rendering to each one according to his works. It's there that he is counting our works in strict justice against Christ. And then he counts Christ's work to us. And it is through the cross 
that God offers this blessing of the gospel, the blessing that God will count righteousness apart from works to all those who believe. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This week, as I was preparing the liturgy, I had actually chosen number 288 uh, for the hymn that would follow the sermon. And then when Pastor Crawford sent in his information for the bulletin, I saw that he also chose 288 uh, for the absolution of sins. And I suspect that he chose it for the same reason I wanted to end with rereading to you the second verse of this hymn. We sang it already, but listen to these words. You are the way to God. Your blood, our ransom paid. In you we face our judge and maker unafraid. Before the throne absolved we stand. Your love has met your law's demand. In the gospel, God has met the own demands of his law, not only the righteous demands required, but also its curse, so that we might stand acquitted and that we might meet our judge and maker unafraid. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we confess that we have judgmental hearts. Lord, we confess that we are so ready to point the finger at others. We are so ready to call out the sins and shortcomings of others. We call out for justice and judgment, and yet, Lord, when it is our sins exposed, we want mercy. And Lord, we do want mercy. And we thank you for the mercy that you give us in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that it does not skirt your strict justice, but your strict justice is played out at the cross where you judge him for all of our sins and you grant to us all of the righteous perfections of his life. Lord, we pray that we would stand in this gospel, that we would rest in this good news and that we would not pretend for a moment that we are righteous in ourselves, that we would not be presumptuous people presuming upon your grace. And yet, Lord, we pray that we would stand in your grace, fully clothed in the perfections and righteousness of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now as we come to the Lord's Supper, we have a visible display of God's judgment. When Jesus gave these elements to his disciples on the night of his betrayal, he took the bread and he took the wine and he said to them, this is my body which I'm giving for you. And he said, this is my blood which is being poured out for you. The symbols themselves are symbols of death. They are 
in one sense, grotesque. They are symbols of a man beaten and scorned, his flesh torn to pieces and nailed to a cross in humiliation and shame. It is a picture of judgment. But it is not just a picture of man's judgment, of Pilate's judgment. It is a picture of God's judgment being poured out on his son for all those he represents. And yet, because it is a picture of God's judgment, it is also for us the most profound picture of God's blessing, isn't it? Because these these elements don't come to us as representations of his judgment. They come to us as the cup of blessing that we bless. That is, they come to us that way if we are in Christ, if we have confessed his name, if we belong to his church, if we have been united to him in faith and repentance, if we belong to Christ, this is a blessing to us, the greatest blessing. But if we are not in Christ, this meal is a warning. That's why the Bible says that when we do this meal, we have to give a warning. A warning that you should examine yourself before you come to this table. Examine yourself as to your faith to feed upon Christ. Not examine yourself to, to realize that you're not righteous. You are not righteous. You're examining yourself as to whether you have faith to come and feed upon Christ. If you love him and desire the forgiveness of your sins, if you long to be free from your sins, if you can't wait for heaven, not just to see Jesus, but to never sin against him again. If that's your heart and your desire, then come today to this meal. Come receive these as from the hands of Christ himself. As he says to you, this is my body, it's for you. This is my blood, it's poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. But if you don't belong to Christ, I encourage you to just let these elements pass. And yet I would also call upon you not to let Christ pass today. He is here to be received in faith. And he promises to save all who will call upon his name. As we come to this meal then, let's pray and ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements now and set them apart for this holy use. Lord, as we come to your table, we, we feel our unworthiness. The full measure of our unworthiness. Our hearts have been exposed and laid bare by your word. You have told us today, you are the guilty man. And yet, Lord, we come to this table so happy to be invited. We come because you have called us in your mercy and promised to save us. We come because you have forgiven our sins and you have counted us righteous, even apart from our works. And Lord, we come to have that sweet word of forgiveness spoken over us again today, so that even as we taste this bread and as we drink this wine, even as it nourishes our body, Lord, that it would nourish our souls, that we would be built up in the inner man, so that in, in resting in this justification that we have, we might walk in newness of life. We might walk in a new zeal for obedience. Lord, use 
this means of grace to that end, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name.